So Joseph spends two more years in prison, forgotten. Then, jo then Pharaoh has two dreams in one night, and none of his wise men can interpret the dreams. And then the cupbearer says, my sins come back to me. He says, when, I, when Pharaoh put me in prison, there was this Hebrew down there, this, and his, his name was Joseph, and he interpreted dreams for the baker and for me, and what he said came true. So Pharaoh says, I want that guy. So Joseph, the text says, Joseph washed up, he dressed up, and he came up out of prison. He's 30 years old. Think about it. In those days, living 30 years uh, was a lifespan for some people, for many people. And he'd spent his life from the age of 17 to 30, unjustly a slave and a prisoner. If anything could make any of us bitter, it would be such injustice. But Joseph maintained his equilibrium in his relationship with God. I find it interesting that when he tells the, the cupbearer, when you get out of prison, remember me to Pharaoh, what he doesn't say is, my stinking, rotten brothers sold me into slavery. I don't belong here. He doesn't say a word about them. And when Pharaoh calls him out of prison and he's standing there, and Pharaoh says to Joseph, I hear you're good with dreams. Now, most of us would say, you bet. Uh, what do you want me to do? Because we'd make it up. I mean, this is our big chance. We've been in prison for at least 10 years, maybe 12 years. We don't know how long he worked for Potiphar before he was framed, but I would guess that Potiphar's wife didn't wait too long before she decided she wanted this guy. So he may have spent 12 years in prison. But when Pharaoh says, I hear you're good with dreams, Joseph says, I'm not good with dreams. God is good with dreams. So tell me a dream, and we'll see what God says. Now, are you not astounded? I'll tell you, whenever I read this story, and I've been reading this story for 52 years, I'm always astounded. How did he do it? How did he maintain his equilibrium so that he wasn't consumed with hatred and bitterness and so that he maintained his faith? We need an answer to that question because you and I, very possibly, people we love, certainly, are going to be in unjust situations. They'll be in suffering situations. And we need help. Big picture man. When our story begins in Genesis 37, we see Joseph reporting to his brothers and to his parents that he'd had some dreams. The first dream, he says, you know, I was, I had, he said, I had a dream, you know? I was standing in a field. I, we were all sheaves in a field. And I was a sheaf. And to all the brothers, all 11 of you guys, you were also sheaves, and your sheaves bowed down to me. Ain't that neat? They didn't think it was neat. But Joseph was his father's favorite son, and uh, he was a little spoiled, I guess, and he was a little naive. So he has another dream, and he says to his brothers and his parents, 
She, I had another dream. And uh, 11 stars and the sun and the moon all bowed down to me. Ain't that neat? They didn't think it was neat. They hated him all the more, the scripture says. And when he goes later on to go on an errand to visit his brothers, they say, oh, here comes the dreamer. They hated him for his dreams. But his dreams were a big picture that he kept in mind. He didn't quite understand everything about it. Uh, but he knew they were significant. He knew they came from God. And he held on to them. I am certain <coughs> that in this room, there are some of you who have had experiences with God that maybe you've not told anybody about. Experiences where you had a hunch, a holy hunch, about what God wanted for your life. About what God wanted to do for your life. About what God had in store for you. You had a holy hunch. One of my professors at Fuller Seminary, Bobby Clinton, said, uh, that's called the destiny revelation experience. We all, we've, many of us have had them. I know I did. And that was, that was the way it was for Joseph. He kept those dreams alive in his mind, and I believe that those dreams kept his faith alive and his heart alive until he saw his brothers 22 years after they sold him into slavery. Because what happens with Pharaoh's dreams is that Joseph says there's going to be seven years of famine, or seven years of plenty, and Pharaoh puts him in charge of the whole, the whole uh, public works project. And then after two years of famine, which were prophesied also, his brothers come down. He is now 39 years old. Just think about that. They haven't seen him since he was 17. But now, of course, he's clean-shaven. He's dressed in full um, uh, Egyptian garb, and he's speaking Egyptian. And they thought he was dead. So they don't recognize him. It's been 22 years. In Genesis 42, when Joseph's brothers do come down to see him, the text says, then he, he remembered his dreams. When, he see, when they come to, before him to get food, they bow down to him. And that dream that he's kept in his life, and those dreams that he kept in his head and in his heart for those 22 years, there it is. He's, he recognizes, this is it. Oh my God, I got goose pimples. Later he tells them, what, he puts them through an ordeal where their consciences are, 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 are worked over and they come to full spiritual sensitivity and repentance over what they had done to their brother's year, their brother years and years ago because they think that all the bad things that are happening to him are a kind of holy Torah karma that is coming back to them because of, of, of what they had done to their brother. But when they discover that it's Joseph they're talking to there in Egypt 22 years later, he says to them, do not be distressed or reproach yourself because you sold me here. God sent me here to preserve life. God sent me ahead of you to ensure your survival on the earth and to save your lives in an extraordinary deliverance. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. 
And when he tells them not to be distressed, he shares with them and with us the secret of not being distressed and destabilized in trying circumstances. That is, remember the big picture. Because he remembers the big picture. Isn't that incredible? He says, the big picture is that God was up to something. You see that? He says, it really wasn't you who sent me here. It was God who sent me here. Now, humanly speaking, it was certainly his brothers. But, he re- but Joseph saw a big picture. He says, God was working something out in this thing that neither you or, or, or I understood. And so he says, don't be mad at yourselves. Don't be afraid that I'm going to get even with you. I realize that God was at work here in the big picture. And that is the secret for us. Joseph had kept the big picture in his mind all those years. He didn't know how it was going to work itself out, but it did. So the lesson for us is clear. If we would maintain our equilibrium and our momentum in the midst of difficult trials and disappointments that confront us, we will need to avoid letting our horrors define our horizons. Don't let your horrors define your horizons. Rather, we should always remember the big picture. I'm reminded of Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychiatrist who was imprisoned by the Nazis in concentration camp. And when he was there, he perfected a a theory of therapy called logotherapy. You ought to read his book, Man's Search for Meaning. It's unforgettable. And he discovered that in the concentration camps, when people felt that they came to the conclusion that their sufferings were meaningless, they were dead in three days. They would die in three days. He said, but as long as people had a purpose for which they were trying to stay alive, for example, I've got to stay alive so I can tell somebody about this. It's interesting, I was reading the other day that Dwight Eisenhower, God bless him, general of the armies of Europe, when he discovered the concentration camps, he said, get some cameras and take pictures of all of these, because someday some SOB is going to say it never happened. He said that uh, 70 years ago, and he was absolutely right. But Viktor Frankl said that as long as you had a big picture, some purpose, you could survive. But when you lose the big picture, you let your horrors define your horizons, and you're done. That can be true for us, too. So what does this mean for us? What kind of a big picture should we keep in mind? I want to give you three facets of this big picture. Number one, keep in mind the big picture that in everything, God works together for good for his people. That even your worst sufferings are somehow going to contribute to a positive outcome. Now, let me say this. I've got to be honest with you. This may mean you're taking one for the team. You know what that phrase means? It means that although it's working for good for those who love God, you may not experience that good. It may be for the greater good of your family, of 
your synagogue, of your people, of the world, maybe. But remember the big picture that in everything God works together for good. Number two, keep in mind the big picture that God is infinitely good even when life is bad. God is good even when life is bad. This is the lesson that the prophet Habakkuk teaches us at the end of his book, and I suggest this weekend that you read the prophet Habakkuk, two or three chapters. It'll take you 10, 15 minutes if you go slow. Habakkuk is writing at a time when the Assyrians are coming in and they're pillaging Jerusalem. Women are being raped, houses are being burned, the temple is being burned. And he's saying to God, what's going on here? Where are you? And God gives him something of the big picture. And at the end of the book, this is what Habakkuk says. I hear and my insides tremble. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. I tremble while I stand, while I wait for the day of distress to come against the people who attack us. That's part of the big picture. God's going to get them. And then he says this. One of my favorite passages in Scripture. He says, Though the fig tree doesn't blossom, and there's no produce on the vine, in other words, even though things are terrible, there's nothing in the refrigerator, there's nothing in the supermarket, there's nothing to eat. Even though the olive crop withers and the fields don't provide food, everything is going to hell in a handbasket. And even though there are no cattle in the stalls, even though things go bad, I will rejoice in the Lord and I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Because God is good even when things are bad. And you need to hold on to that big picture. Not only does God work all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, but God is good even when things are bad. Habakkuk continues, he says, The Lord God is my strength. He will set my feet like a deer. He will let me walk upon the heights. He remembered the big picture, that God is good even when life is bad. The third aspect of the big picture. Remember that even in tough times, God always stands ready to provide us with his delights. I'm thinking of Richard Wormbrand, one of my personal heroes. Richard Wormbrand was a Jewish believer in Yeshua in Europe, Romania. I've had the privilege of meeting his grandson and his daughter-in-law. And I met Richard Wormbrand. Wormbrand was a playboy. And then through the witness of a Christian carpenter, he came to faith in Yeshua. And he became really a radical servant of Yeshua. When the communists came to power, they had a meeting where they were, try- where they were going to co-opt all the ministers in Romania and make them their puppets. And Wernbrand's wife said to him, Richard, wipe the spit off the face of Jesus. And he said, if I do that, you know what's going to happen to me. She said, I don't want to be married to a man who would let that happen. So he got up and he protested and he spent 14 years 
in prison in Romania, tortured. He wrote a book called Tortured for Christ. 14 years, three years in solitary confinement. I saw a picture of him when he got out. There were two confinements. One was longer. When he got out of the first one, he looked like one of those pictures from Buchenwald of, of somebody who's more dead than alive. That's what he looked like after those years in prison. But Wormbrand, who was a true tzaddik, a really extraordinary man, uh, uh, you knew you were in the presence of holy greatness when you were with him. He said that those years in prison were the best years of his faith life. That God met him so richly in the midst of that suffering. So remember that everything works together for good for those who are called to God's according to God's purpose. Remember that God is good even when things are bad. And remember that whatever your circumstances, right now, you don't have to be in suffering, you don't have to be in prison, you don't have to be framed, you don't have to be Richard Wormbrand. You can be exactly who you are. Right now, God stands ready to provide you with his good gifts. In Matthew 7, Yeshua says this, Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives Everyone who asks receives. Whoever seeks finds. And everyone who knocks, for them the door will be opened. And then he says, who among you would give your children a stone if they ask for bread? Or would give them a snake when they ask for fish? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? All of the insights I've shared with you will live if, you're gonna, if you will do three things. I'm going to give you three practices to institute in your life that you need, I need, we need, everyone needs in order for us to be spiritually not just healthy but vibrant first become people of the book read it devour it inhabit the Bible and let the Bible inhabit you now a lot of people treat the Bible like a horoscope they flip it open they look for something that makes them feel good and then they think they've done their Bible study no. I want you, you know, John Wesley said of himself, John Wesley, when he died, John Wesley spent 55 years preaching three times a day. He wrote 202 volumes of books, of grammars, of histories, most of it written while he was on horseback, going from one place to another. But he said he was a man of one book. That's the Bible. That's an exaggeration, but that was the foundation of everything. Whenever I speak here, I talk about Larry Feldman. Because Larry is one of the four people I know on the face of the earth who really knows his Bible. Really knows it. His friend Michael Rodelnik is another one, my good friend too. And Larry's got a very vibrant, sturdy of faith. And he'll be the first to tell you that what has fed his faith from, from, the, from, the, from day one, before he went off to college, was God gave him a voracious appetite for the Bible. 
And my word to you now, I can't make you do this. And maybe you're going to think, oh, it's boring. It's boring, yes, it is boring if you're unfamiliar with it. It's an appetite that grows with the feeding. I was up yesterday morning at 4 o'clock in the morning. I couldn't sleep. I got up and I read the Bible for an hour. And it was great. It fueled my whole day. Uh, I beg you. I plead with you. I encourage you. Read the Bible. Not just a little. Devour it. Let it master it and let it master you. You can't really master the Bible, but you can let it master you. Number two, become people of prayer. Learn to spend time talking to God. And like any relationship, it's a relationship that grows with the feeding, you know? Uh, you may not know how to talk to God very well now because you don't know him very well. You don't know how to talk to him. Um, but spend time in prayer. Thirdly, so become people of the book, become people of prayer, and thirdly, become people of the Spirit. In Luke's version of the passage I quoted to you from Matthew, Luke says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now you might say, well, I already got it. Yes, you got it. But how much, how much, of, how much of you does it have? The Bible, Paul says in Ephesians, he says, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. We're supposed to be filled with the Spirit. I encourage you all to say, God, God, I want all of your spirit that you have to give me, and I want the spirit to have all of me that I have to give. Don't take these things for granted. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher in the 20th century, said, people tell me, I got it at conversion. He says, okay, where is it? Good question. Through his word, through prayer, through the spirit, we will be big picture people, whatever life hands us. I want to close with three illustrations. The first one is about Rabbi Simcha Bunim. Rabbi Simcha Bunim was blind. And one day he said, you know, what good would it do God if I traded places with Abraham? And if Abraham was blind and I was Abraham. He said, what good would it do God? He says, instead, I'm just going to try to be the best Simcha Bunim I can be. Interesting. Notice how he thought about it. He didn't think about his blindness in terms of himself. He says, what good would it do God if I was Abraham? I'd rather serve God exactly the way I am than desire to be somebody else. So whoever you are, don't waste your time desiring to be somebody else. Decide you're going to be the best person, the best version of you that there could be. Number two, Rabbi Zusia. Rabbi Zuzia was a great tzaddik, a great holy man. He had many disciples. They thought the world of him. When he was on his deathbed, he was crying, and they're surprised because they thought he'd be confident at the time of his death. And they said to him, Master, Rabbi, are you crying because you were, you, you were not Moses? You, you didn't live up to Moses' level. Uh, Rabbi, are you crying because you were not Abraham? And he says, I'm crying because I'm, sure I'm not sure if I was Zuzia. In other words, he's going to meet his maker and he's afraid that he hasn't succeeded in being the best version of himself. Finally, there's Tiny Tim. 
I must tell you that I'm a, I'm a junkie. I, I'm, a, I'm a, a Christmas Carol junkie. I watch every version of the Christmas Carol I can see. There's something about that story that just gets me. And towards the end of Christmas Carol, Bob Cratchit, Tiny Tim's father, is talking about having taken him to church. And little Tiny Tim apparently had tuberculosis. He was quite sick. He was crippled. He had a, And he said that little Tim had said when he was in, in, in church, he said, uh, let me read it to you. I, I, I want to I give you the exact words. Dickens says it really beautifully. He says, Oh, no, 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 no. Just a minute. There it is. He says, uh, his father says that Tim, quote, hoped the people who saw him in church, he hoped that the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple. And it might be pleasant to them to remember on Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see, end quote. In other words, Tim was not thinking about him being a cripple. He was thinking of how useful he was as an illustration of the mercy of God. He had a big picture that people's spirituality and the glory of God was more important than how things went for him. So, we finish with a couple of scripture texts. Do you have a scripture text up there? We should have one. There you are. This one is from Ecclesiastes. It says, to enjoy your work and to accept your lot in life, this is indeed a gift from God. That's not bad. Enjoy your work. Accept your lot in life. Don't waste your life being jealous of things you don't have. Don't waste your life trying to be somebody else. Spend your life devoting who you are to God. And the other passage is from Philippians. And let's look at that one. I know how to be brought low, Paul says, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Whatever your lot in life, God will be with you. He will give you his gifts. He will give you his blessings. He will strengthen you. And may he be with you as you go from this place